Hi, this is your host, Corbin. This is Alan. And this is your guide for Wolfgang Peterson's Air Force One. Before we get into the making of the film, allow me to take you back to 1997 to remember the top movies released that year. They were Titanic, of course, the, the biggest movie of the year, at one point, the biggest movie of all time. Yep. Also, Goodwill Hunting, Princess Mononoke, which I got to see in the theaters. Perfect Blue, Alan, came out in 97. That's right. I forgot that that came out. That was the start of Satoshi Kon's, like, that was kind of the thing that really put him on the map, was that yes. movie. Maybe we'll do a Satoshi Kon retrospective review someday. We have talked about it. We have talked <laughs> about it. Also, um, Disney's Hercules came out. The Fifth Element, David Lynch's Lost Highway, Starship Troopers, Gattaca, Face Off, Batman Forever, uh, Scream 2, Alien Resurrection, Home Alone 3, George of the Jungle for Richer or Poorer, which I think is an underrated Tim Allen movie that you should definitely check out. Kirstie Alley's in that as well. And Mouse Hunt, another underrated classic I think a lot of people have forgotten about. From that year, we have reviewed Men in Black, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, and Tomorrow Never Dies was technically not quite a review, but it is a James Bond guide that I wrote where I ranked all of the James Bond movies. Of course, all of the links to our reviews and guides are in the description below. If you'd like to reminisce more about the films of 97, then head over to letterbox.com. And while you're there, don't forget to follow me and Alan. Our letterbox profile links are in the description below. At the 69th Academy Awards, Best Picture went to The English Patient. I do also want to say we have reviewed leading stars Harrison Ford and Gary Oldman in multiple movies. Links to those are also in the description below. Air Force One actually started as a movie, you know, originally produced by Beacon Productions, created for none other than Kevin Costner. But he wasn't available. And instead of putting the film on hold, he suggested Harrison Ford take over the leading role. I thought this was interesting. I did not know this um, without watching the director's commentary for the film. I think Kevin Costner would have been very good in the role, but I don't think he quite has that tough presence that Harrison Ford does. I'm curious though, Alan, what do you think in an alternate world? This is technically going to be an alternate universe review. We're supposed to be reviewing Top Gun. What if in an alternate right. universe we were reviewing Kevin Costner as President Marshall? What do you think of that? That, yeah, having Kevin Costner instead would have been interesting. Um, I, but I think you're right. I think uh, he definitely has a different presence than what Harrison Ford brings. So I feel like I believe Harrison Ford more in this movie than Kevin Costner. But I guess I, it's kind of hard to say without actually seeing Costner in the same role. But I think I'm with you. Um, although I think he still could have worked. Now, Kevin Costner would have likely been directing and starring in his three hour epic, The Postman, which came out the exact same year, 97. So that's why I believe that's the project he was working on. It wasn't stated explicitly what it was. Peterson had been wanting to do a movie with Harrison Ford for a long time. And it turns out that Ford was a fan of Peterson's film, Das Boot which I will talk about here a little bit later in the guide, but that is kind of the big deal that put him on the directing map. The crew on the film actually toured Air Force One. So um, during the film, when the bad guys get a tour of the plane, that's the exact same tour the crew got when they modeled the interior of the sets. They also did rent a Boeing 747 
146 airplane, the same model Air Force One is built on for the exterior shots of the plane when the plane is um, on the ground and sometimes in the mm. sky. That is a real Boeing 747. I thought this was another intriguing set choice was where General Raddick is imprisoned. This is not a spoiler, okay? It's in the trailer. Where he's imprisoned is the Ohio State Reformatory, the same place where they filmed the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, I wondered. Uh, I wondered because there is a <laughs> shot um, in the jail or in that prison. I was like, man, that looks kind of familiar to me. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I thought it looked familiar too. Also, where they abduct General Raddick from, they're supposed to be in Kazakhstan. They're still in Ohio. That is just... <laughs> I, I couldn't remember if it was Cleveland or Columbia. I, I don't remember, honestly. But mm. that is just downtown Ohio in a major city and where they filmed the helicopter chase, the explosion. Kind of funny. And yeah. believe it or not, Harrison Ford did all of his own stunts in this film at the age of 54. That's impressive. That's impressive for a man who's reached middle age at that point. Yeah, never do you see a stunt double do his stunts because there isn't one. That's all him. Mm -hmm. Also, according to the commentary, which I found was very interesting, Gary Oldman would not stay in character in between takes. In fact, he was very fun to be around. And Peterson called the filming experience Air Force fun. I guess <laughs> that's just how much fun everybody had. I guess so, yeah. Also, one of the other characters that we just talked about, General Raddick, played by Jurgen Proshnow, him and Peterson were reunited after 16 years when they first worked together on Peterson's claim to fame, Das Boot. Now, also, his director's cut of the film came out the same year. Now, the last piece of interesting casting information was at a Bill Clinton event, he was president at the time, mm -hmm. Harrison Ford publicly asked Glenn Close to play the part of the vice president. And Bill Clinton thought that was a very exciting idea for a woman vice president to be in the movie. He encouraged yeah. her to do it. She couldn't turn it down. It was just kind of funny how Harrison Ford was there. Glenn Close was there. That's where he asked her and she accepted it right there at Bill Clinton's presidential fundraiser. That's very interesting uh, that that's <laughs> how uh, she was asked to be the vice president. That's very interesting. Usually you don't get asked publicly at a presidential event, but I guess yeah. they thought she couldn't turn it down there. Um, but despite being called Air Force fun, it wasn't totally fun for everybody. Originally, Randy Newman composed the score for the film. Mm-hmm. Peterson felt it sounded like a parody. He did not like it at all. So he ditched him. He basically got rid of him and all of his score. And he hired Jerry Goldsmith, along with some help from Joel McNeely. Um, I don't mm. believe he's credited to write a more patriotic score. And Goldsmith did the entire score in about a month. Wow. Well, yeah, I, I saw his name. I saw Jerry Goldsmith's name on it uh, on mm -hmm. in the credits, uh, which we've talked about him in the past. Um, yeah, so we have that reviewed is, other scores. Yeah, that, that is interesting that uh, they kicked out Randy Newman uh, <laughs> in favor of uh, in favor of Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, hmm. and Gold Goldsmith said he would never agree to do a film score in that short of a time frame ever again because Makes it was sense. very hard for him to basically start and come to completion in four weeks. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I that makes <laughs> sense why he would say never again to that kind of a thing. <laughs> now, there was a novelization published in June 1997, which is interesting that it was released a month before the film opened in the U.S. Wikipedia has an has like extensive highlights of the differences between the books and the movie. I'm not going to go into that because they are spoilers. And if you're curious at all, of course, the only way to find a copy of the novelization is probably in a thrift store at this point. It's definitely not in circulation anymore at all. I just found that interesting. There is a lot more character backstory, at least within the book. Now, Speaking of President Bill Clinton, who we just brought up earlier, he saw the film twice within three days of its theatrical run. He liked it that much. He thought it was that exciting. And he said that um, some of the features like the escape capsule and the rear parachute ramp, he said those aren't real. Now, the crew was never allowed to go look in any other part of the plane except just kind of that main hallway Mm-hmm. And um, the bo- basement of the plane was all made up. They did. They did get to see kind of some of the control room area, but that's all there is. The rest is, as we know, fictionalized. Some of it is, of course, secretive. Gotcha. Yeah, that would make sense why they wouldn't show them that kind of stuff, and then also go on <laughs> to portray it in a movie to be accurate, especially when you get into the innards of how the plane, uh, right. how that plane operates. Yeah, it makes sense. But Air Force One, the legacy still lives on. As of 2016, on President Donald Trump's acceptance speech, he played the main theme from this movie, which Mm -hmm. I thought was very interesting. I did see some of his acceptance speech, and I said, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Oh, wait, that's the music from Air Force One. Right. Right. I thought that was fun. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's that is interesting that uh, uh, a president used a music from a movie i guess it make i guess it kind of makes sense because this is very much it's a very patriotic movie right mm-hmm. so i guess it makes sense to be playing music from this i guess i am surprised that uh many would have recognized uh, a theme from air force one maybe we'll talk about that in the big podcast or the, in the main podcast but either way sure. interesting details now air force one was nominated for two oscars at the 70th academy awards It did lose both of them. It lost film editing to none other than Titanic. It competed against As Good As It Gets, Goodwill Hunting, and LA Confidential, and surprise, surprise, it also lost in the sound category to, yes, right, you guessed it, Titanic, which, as we all know, like, swept the Oscars that year. It won, like, every Oscar ever. It's crazy. Yeah, it was nominated for... Uh, every Oscar it possibly could be. And it, it walked away with like 11 of, of the 14 that it got nominated for. So no surprise yeah. that it lost both uh, to the same mo- the same movie. It's really crazy. Um, and in the sound category, it did compete against Con Air, Contact, and LA Confidential again. Okay. So as I said, this movie came out Friday, July 25th, 1997. I would have been two years, five months, and 14 days old. Alan would have been one year, six months, and 20 days old. We were just youngins. Not, definitely not um, going to go see this R-rated movie. No way, Jose. (laughs) Nope. Uh, You could see it opened during the summer months. So, what did it go up against? Shockingly, opening middle of July, it went up against nothing. It went up against Paramount Pictures' Good Burger. Interesting. 
Do you remember that movie, Alan? Good. Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. How may I take your order? So, yeah, I know <laughs> of it. Um, I've never actually watched the movie, but I'm I'm fully aware of its existence. I think it's yeah. mostly been me trying to avoid watching it. But I do know Did of it. I, that is surprising that that was the only thing that was released or uh, in competition for that week. Yeah. I mean, it was like a big Nickelodeon movie. It yeah. was Kel Mitchell and Keenan Thompson, Sinbad. I mean, those were like pretty hot stars of the 90s, especially when it comes to Nickelodeon. I mean, Good Burger opened at fifth. Air Force One, no surprise, opened at number one at the box office, grossing $37.1 million. Um, George of the Jungle came in second. Men in Black came in third. It was dethroned from number one. Contact came in fourth. So it did stay at number one, um, two weeks in a row. It did open up against Spawn in its second week, um, which if you haven't seen Spawn, check it out. It's uh, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, Picture Perfect opened at number five. Also, it went up against Disney's Air Bud, believe it or not. Usually Disney movies do pretty well. This one opened at number seven, surprisingly. Yeah, that's one of their like, lower tier Disney movies to be fair. <laughs> uh Airbud, I think it it went on to make a number of sequels. Um oh, yeah. but most of them ended up becoming, I think, straight to DVD after I think it was after the first few, if I'm not mistaken. So what ultimately dethroned Air Force One from the box office? It would have had to have taken something pretty special. Well, it was Warner Brothers Conspiracy Theory starring Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts too very big stars. It was another R-rated um, thriller movie. It only grossed $75 million, um domestically and worldwide, so it was a far less, you know, box office powerhouse than Air Force One, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it was pushed down to number two mm. in its third week. That's so pretty good, though. Number Coming in at number two on third week alone during the middle of the summer. That's pretty good. It is really good. Um, it did stay at number two in its fourth week and then finally went to number three in its fifth week. It actually jumped back up to number two in its sixth week. Um, so it, it actually did very well domestically throughout the box office throughout the rest of the year. So with an $85 million budget, it opened in almost 3,000 theaters domestically. It grossed $172.9 million. In the foreign markets, it grossed $142.2 million for a worldwide total of $315 million. That's pretty good. It's very good. With an $85 million budget, Sony had a hit on their hands. And that is definitely reflected in the scores for this film. On Letterboxd, it currently holds a 3.1. IMDb, more of a medio mediocre 6.5. But on Rotten Tomatoes, um, it has a 78% certified fresh critics rating. That's pretty good. Yeah, certified fresh. I think it's just barely scooting by, but... Still certified fresh. That's pretty good. It's certified fresh. Metascore 61. Now that's barely squeaking by. A 60 would have put it yeah. into the mixed category, but technically generally favorable reviews. 66% um, approval on audience. And people right out of the theater, cinema score goers gave it an A. So all the way around, it's pretty pretty good for the most part. There's some mediocre scores like with IMDb. but. People tend to like it, it sounds like, for at least from the scores. It really was, and I think that probably just 
it has to do with it being a product of the 90s you know yeah patriotism was fairly high this is just a straight through patriotic movie um mm. according to imdb i don't think users have thought it has aged too well giving it more of a very just mediocre straight down the line 6.5 pretty mediocre mm-hmm All right, Alan, thank you for joining me. I'll see you on Monday. Sure thing. And thank you listeners for coming along with us as we've been your guide to the production and impact of this film. Now that you have your guide to Air Force One, make sure to subscribe to the podcast for Alan and I's full review coming next Monday. And tune in the week after as we shoot hoops with everyone's favorite bunny and basketball star in Space Jam. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.